The word of our Lord from the Gospel of John. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw out some now, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word, bless it to our our hearts and our minds minister to us through it. And may we hear your voice calling to us through your word. And may we go as you invite us. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen. There's an alternate title to the sermon this morning. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something purple? That didn't quite fit, and I knew the ladies would be maybe amused by that. Maybe I was thinking too highly of my humor. John's gospel is filled with imagery. It's filled with tension. It's filled with one of my favorite words, juxtaposition, the smashing of two, two ideas up together. It's filled with irony. Everything about this story screams something new is happening. In fact, everything before it even screams that something new is happening. At the very beginning of John's Gospel, the very first verse we read, In the beginning was the Word. And immediately our minds ought to race back to the very beginning of Genesis. The beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is immediately, in the very opening of his book, telling us something new is happening. New creation is happening in the life of this man, Jesus. He tells us in that prologue to his gospel, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He became a man like us. The one who created our flesh, 
by forming us out of the dust of the ground. The one who breathed the life of the Spirit into us, making us to become living beings. He came and became flesh. And He tabernacled among us. That takes the Jewish mind back to the time prior to the temple. They've got a temple in Jerusalem. And here, the Word, God's eternal Word, who spoke creation into existence, into existence, He has become our flesh, and He's living in a tent among us. Something new is happening. God is doing something different. Right after the prologue, you have John the baptizer declaring to the people, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Something new is happening. The promised Lamb has come. The one who is to take away the world's sins has come. Then we've got that very short quick passage of Jesus calling disciples. John sends a couple of his to follow Jesus. And they want to know, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. So they came and saw. The next day, Peter finds Philip and tells Philip, come on buddy, follow me. And so Philip runs to his friend Nathaniel. We think we found him, the Messiah, the Christ, the one for whom the whole world has been waiting. Really, what good is going to come out of Nazareth? I don't know, but you better come and find out. And when Jesus tells Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel says, What in the world? Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus says, Your mind is blown because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. But you are going to see the heavens opened and the angels of God Descending upon the Son of Man and ascending back up into heaven. You're going to see things that your mind cannot comprehend because this is the start of something new. Everything after this passage, here at the very beginning of John's second chapter, screams that something new is happening. Immediately after the story of the water being turned into wine, we have Jesus going into the temple and cleansing the temple, knocking over tables, driving out those who are exploiting the temple of God. The temple was to be a sign of God's kingdom on earth, the place where God was to dwell among His people. And Jesus goes in there to clean house. Something new is happening. Immediately after that, you have Nicodemus approaching Jesus in the dark of night. T. 
Teacher, we know you've come from God. And Jesus tells him to see the kingdom, you must be born again. You must have new birth, new life. Something new has to happen in you. The woman at the well immediately afterwards comes to draw water. Jesus enters into a conversation with her and he tells her, if you knew who it was that was speaking with you, you would have asked him for water and he would have given you living water. Living water which would spring up to new life, a new source of life in you. Back to our story. Everything about it screams something new is happening. It takes place at a wedding. A new family is being formed. The two becoming one flesh before God. It's the first of what John calls the signs or miracles. This is the beginning, the start. The sign itself is intended to bring to our minds the idea of newness and something radically different happening. You have old wash tubs being filled with water and then transformed into casks of wine because something new is happening. There's reason to celebrate in this story. Jesus is attending a friend's wedding feast. They're gathered together to celebrate the beginning of something new. You know, wine is celebratory. It's a beverage for festivities. There's a reason to celebrate. The people who have gathered for these several days of a wedding feast, they have cause to celebrate as family and friends who love this couple that's getting married. But in the midst of their celebration, in the midst of their merrymaking, there's presented a problem. Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they're out of wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not yet my time. She says, perhaps the most The most simplified and putting everything together thing that can be said in all of Scripture. Do whatever He tells you. If that were our life motto, life would be pretty good. I mean, not pretty good like we'd all be rich and healthy and fat and happy. But we would be on the right path. We would be on that straight and narrow that Jesus talked about. Do whatever He tells you. Quite presumptive of her. Jesus just kind of reprimanded her for involving Him. We don't know if she's kind of giving Him a hint. Hey, if you and your disciples kind of be on your way, maybe others will be on their way and we can save this family some embarrassment because the problem that is presented is that they've invited a lot of folks over for several days of of festivities and they've run out. They've got no more. This is a big problem in a Jewish family. 
the shame and embarrassment of not having enough when you've invited folks over. But Jesus steps in at the invitation of his mother, the presumption of his mother. Go fill the jugs of water, or the cleansing jugs with water. John tells us that there are six of them, that they are between 20 and 30 gallons apiece. I'm not a math scholar, but that's 120 gallons to 180 gallons of water. Bring some of the water to me. We don't know at what point the water was transformed into wine, but what we do know is that 120 to 180 gallons of water being turned into wine is the equivalent of somewhere between... 600 and 900 average size bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. Again, at what point it was transformed, we don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus doesn't just turn a bit of water into some wine. He turns gobs of it into the very best wine of the feast. A surplus. In fact, this is such good wine. I mean, wine made by the creator of heaven and earth, I imagine would probably be the best you could ever find. But it's so good that the master of the feast involves the bridegroom. Groom, what in the world were we thinking? Typically, we would give the best. And then a few days in, maybe we would pull out some cheap stuff. But you've saved the very best till just now. You see, Jesus doesn't just meet the need. He provides an overabundance of the very best. We tend to run to Jesus when we have need, when something is falling apart, when life's not working out like we thought it would, when the marriage isn't quite as happy as it was a few years ago. We run to Jesus in our deepest of need or in our our moments of crisis, but we forget the fact, if we're not careful, that Jesus is able to not just meet the needs that we have, but He's able to provide an overabundance of the very best. Why does John refer to the miracles as signs? He, he, He won't let us... Just think, oh, this is a spectacle that Jesus is putting on. This is some sideshow, some attention-grabbing wonder worker here. He says, no, these are signs. They They are pointing us to some reality about who Jesus is and why He came. He tells us at the very end of His gospel, 
I could give you many other signs, but these signs are given so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. John refers to these miracles and signs to help us recognize and celebrate Jesus as the Messiah of God. God's anointed who is coming to put the world back together. We've got a children's devotional book that we read as a family, and I love how it says, He is coming to make all, all that is bad untrue. John says that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, we might then have life in His name. And so it won't do for John to just tell us crazy stories about Jesus. He wants us to realize who it is that we are encountering in His gospel. So that we might have life in Him. And this is the whole reason that Jesus, the Word made flesh, came. He Himself said in John's gospel, I have come so that you may have life. In fact, so that you can have life more abundantly. And in this first sign, we encounter one who comes to teach us about the kingdom. The kingdom that he's ushering in. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 55 that we read earlier, but also in chapter 25 and all throughout. But if you just read those two chapters, you realize that the prophets foresaw that as the kingdom of God was coming, it was going to be a generous kingdom. A kingdom where God would heap blessing upon blessing upon His people. And here John begins his gospel by telling us of this generous goodness of Jesus because he's coming to bring a kingdom of celebration and generosity. But immediately after we have the water turned into wine, John tells us the story of Jesus going into the temple. The temple in Jerusalem. turning over tables because this dwelling place where heaven was to meet earth, this emblem of the, the kingdom of God was filled not with generosity but with self-serving and self-centeredness and exploitation. Aren't these Two images in conflict. I told you there was juxtaposition in John's gospel. You got a wedding and Jesus is celebrating and he's calls for celebration and he's turning water into wine and he's overly generous. And then you've got him going into the temple in Jerusalem, in Judah, the south, where Israel had been faithful, not up in Galilee where they had been unfaithful, but down here in Judah where the good guys were. The folks who think right and vote right. And he's turning over tables. But these two stories aren't really in conflict, though it might seem. No, God is generous to those in need who recognize their need 
But upon those who do not see their need, he will not force himself. In the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are spirit poor. Those who see within themselves poverty. Notice, that's the first of the Beatitudes. And he says, theirs is the kingdom. You've got to be emptied in order to be filled. If you think you're full, you won't go where you can be filled. Some of us do, but not very many people go to a restaurant just to hang out. We go to eat because we're hungry. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus also says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they will be filled. John, in his first epistle, said if we say that we have no sin, we are fooling ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. If we say we haven't sinned, we got no need for forgiveness. we got no need for God to work in our lives because we've got it together. He said we're calling God a liar. Making Him out to be a deceiver. So no, God will not force Himself upon those who refuse to recognize their need for Him. This something new that's starting begins with cleansing. We might be fooling others, perhaps even fooling ourselves, but Jesus knows our need. He is aware of it. He's there. He sees that the wine has run out. He knows what's deep down within us. In fact, right after the changing of water into wine and then the cleansing of the temple, we read these couple of verses at the end of chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Hey, this is great. Something exciting's happening. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. He knows what's deep down within us. And he came to cleanse not just our outer bodies, our hands. He comes not just offering some big 20 to 30 gallon jug of water that we can ceremoniously cleanse our outer bodies with. No, He came to cleanse the temple. To cleanse the inner man. To cleanse His people and the place of His dwelling. He's come to do something new. What are the implications for us? Well, in our lives, He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we could ask or think. That's Paul to the Ephesians. 
in our lives, in our families. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we could ask or think. In our congregation, in our community, He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we could ask or think. And what's more is that the implication concerns not just the ability of Jesus, but also the desire of Jesus. He does not sit idly by. He's not only able to do things that we can't even imagine, He wants to do things that we can't even imagine. He wants to do something new in us, in me, in you. He wants to take that which is stale and that which is broken and that which is dirty, that which is sitting outside, and He wants to bring it inside and He wants to make it into something that is celebratory something that is joyous, something that is filled with new life and new possibilities. Lent begins this coming Wednesday. And Lent is the beginning of something new. Even the word itself reminds us of newness. Lenten, spring, new life, flowers budding. Lindsay took the uh, two little kids on a, well, the three little kids, I guess Daisy was with her, um, on a walk the other day, and they had been learning about winter. And uh, as they're passing around, they're observing all the things that remind them, yeah, it's still winter, it's cold outside, that's, that's winter, there are no you know, leaves in the trees, yep, it's still winter. And Topher noticed that a neighbor had some flowers And Topher ran over to the fence and told the flowers, it's not your time yet. It's not spring yet. Spring, Lent, reminds us of newness, new life, a new start, new possibilities. It's a a time in the life of the church where we tap the brakes just a bit before we approach the cross. And I want to encourage you, don't miss this opportunity to draw near to Jesus. Come walk with us. We're going to be looking over the next few weeks at the different signs that John presents for us. And showing how they, they point us to Jesus and the, the miraculous nature of what He is able to do in our lives and what He comes to do in His people and through His people in the world. And so don't miss this opportunity to draw near to Jesus. This is a time to refocus, a time to 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 direct our attention as we approach the cross. I want to encourage you also find a, a practical way to deny yourself. We always think of Lent as a time of fasting, and it is. And find a, a practical way to deny yourself for these next 40 days. When we deny ourselves, whether it's denying ourselves a certain meal or denying ourselves a certain thing that we enjoy that's not bad, you know, if it's sin, get the sin out of your life. Don't 
you know, it's not a time to just commit some sins to God. It's, but something good that's, that's, that, that is celebratory in your life. If we deny ourselves those things, then we create a hunger within ourselves, a desire. It's funny the things that we'll miss. I always miss bread when I give away bread, and I can't, I can't help but think about it all throughout the time. But as we deny ourselves, as we create a scenario of, of hunger for ourselves, be reminded that Jesus is the one for whom our hearts ought to be hungry. And in your fasting, I want to encourage you, don't miss the feast. Because yes, He's come to turn over tables. He's come to clean house. He's come to clean up the house of our hearts. But He also meets us in the feast. He meets us at the wedding. He meets us at the day of celebration. He meets us here on Sundays, which is why historically the 40, the, well, the 40 days don't include Sundays because Sunday is always the day of resurrection. It is the day to celebrate. God is among us. And so gather with us as a church and celebrate. Let us celebrate together. The last thing I want to share with you is something I've been sharing with you for the last few weeks. And if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. We must recognize our need for Him. Because if we miss Him, we miss everything. If we think we're good, that we've got life figured out and covered, we'll miss the only one who is truly good, the only one who offers us true and abundant life, the only one who can put broken lives back together. And the beautiful thing is that He steps right into the midst of our need and is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we would ask or imagine. Don't miss Him. He's starting something new. Let's pray.